Well, good morning to you. We're so glad that you're here. Would you open up your Bible, please, and turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, we'll read verse 8 here in just a moment to begin our lesson. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Several years ago, uh, I bought something from a company, and in order to get a discount, I don't know if it was 10 or 15% off, whatever it was, I signed up to receive emails from them, which was maybe one of the worst decisions of my life. But I've received these emails from them now for years and years, even though I haven't bought anything from them in years. And I know that I could probably just go in there and hit unsubscribe six or seven times, and eventually they would quit sending me emails. But I haven't done that. Uh, Instead, I just don't open them. I don't look at them. But there was a message here just a couple of weeks ago that caught my eye because it was different. It was different than any of the other messages that they've sent me in advertising their specific product. And so without telling you what the product was, here was part of the message that they sent me a couple of weeks ago. We understand that Father's Day can be a bit difficult for some. If you'd rather not hear from us about Father's Day this year, let us know by simply clicking the link below and you'll be opted out of content related to Father's Day. Now that was interesting to me. I I was a little bit taken aback and I spent the rest of the day thinking about that. That's thoughtful, and I kind of like the sentiment of being aware of the the circumstances and pain of others, but at the same time, I thought about this email, and, and I thought how this company sends me an email for almost every special occasion on the calendar, and I had never seen an email like this from them before. Just this year, just since January 1st, this company has sent me emails for Pride Month, Mother's Day, Star Wars Day, the first day of spring, Earth Day, St. Patrick's Day, Valentine's Day, and New Year's Day. Without giving me the option to opt out of all of these emails that they sent me. For some, this day, where fathers are celebrated by so many, this day is a day of, to use the email's word, a day of difficulty. And if it's that for you, I can't change that. But here's what I can do. I can share God's Word to praise those who have been godly fathers. To convict and encourage those of us who should be godly fathers today as we're striving to raise our children or to be fathers to our adult children. And I can share God's Word to try and raise up the next generation of those of you who will be fathers so that you might be the godly fathers that God has called us to be. And all of this, ultimately, my prayer is, will point us to the only one who can perfectly fulfill the need that all of us have for a father that loves us and only does what is best for us. To do so, I want us to consider a passage that maybe we don't normally associate with being a father. And that's found here in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah chapter 6 And verse 8, this is the best-known verse, certainly from the book of Micah, one of the best-known verses in uh, the Minor Prophets. And it says, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now that's a powerful and important verse. There is no doubt. 
But who is the you here? Who is the you that he is addressing? Well, generally, it is anyone who is seeking a relationship with God, but specifically, the prophet is addressing some fathers, some fathers who are complaining about their service to God. Now, the prophet prophet Micah was a country prophet. He grew up in the country, and he is sent by God into Jerusalem to address these city folk about what they're doing and what they're not doing in regard to their relationship with God. And the response that he gets from these people are like, "We're, we're doing stuff for God, like, like, why is God so, like, concerned about all of this? Uh, what does God want from us? Uh, what we're doing isn't enough. Well, what does God want? And maybe somewhat sarcastically, they say, going back to verse 6, this response of, what does God want from us? We're already doing all of these things for Him. Notice what it says in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord, these people say, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, is God going to be uh, pleased with that if I just offer all of these sacrifices you're talking about, Micah? But they take it a step further, verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Human sacrifice was not uncommon in the pagan world, both uh, in this part of the world, even in the Americas. And making these kinds of child sacrifices for their gods was considered kind of the highest form of devotion, that you're giving up a child in service to your God. And that was specifically forbidden in the law of Moses in Leviticus 18 and again in Leviticus chapter 20. But during this time and around this time, we learn from 2 Kings chapter 16 that this was actually happening among the people of God. And so it sounds like this kind of hyperbole on their part, but in some ways it's a legitimate question. These fathers are asking, what do you want from me, God? You want me to sacrifice my child? Is that what you want? But God's response in verse 8 shows what He has always wanted, then and now, from fathers and everybody else. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And so I'll add, as we think about the context in which that phrase was given, what does the Lord require of you, fathers? As someone who is a father or may someday be a father, what does the Lord require of you? And this passage suggests several things. So let's go through the passage with the rest of our time this morning and strive to answer that question in the context in which it's given. Number one, the Lord requires of you fathers, as we think about this verse, He requires present commitment. What does the Lord require of you? A presence and commitment is implied by the question that is asked. Yes, you. The word in Hebrew that is translated you here is in the masculine singular. It's not, what does the Lord require of y'all? What does the Lord require of people? He says, what does the Lord require of you? That's you, my man. That's you, Father. What does He require of you? And this is where godly fathering starts. You calls for presence and require from God demands commitment from us. 
Godly fathering starts with your commitment to be a literal and also spiritual presence in the life of your children. Now, and I don't mean just that you're around, yeah, dad is there. I mean that you are present and engaged and committed. It is telling to me the primary word for orphans throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. What is the primary word that is used for orphans? They are called the fatherless, especially in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. And it was the job of those who were faithful, according to the law of Moses, to provide for these fatherless ones. And just as an aside, we know, we can look around and know not everyone has had a godly father. Not everyone has had a father, period. And one of our primary responsibilities as Christian men is to provide for the fatherless, to be there for those who don't have that kind of influence, who haven't had that kind of influence in their life, that we must be that present, committed person to them. But when it comes to our own biological children, adopted children, we need to make sure that we are providing for them and that they're not fatherless. We know, of course, James chapter 1 and verse 27, in describing pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father, it's this, James says, to visit the fatherless and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Uh, some of our paraphrases and newer translations say to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and that's true, that's what it's describing. But the specific word in Greek is fatherless those who do not have a father. Why? Why is it fatherless to refer to orphans? Well, they are grouped with widows and strangers because they are lacking the person who is supposed to be their provider, their leader, and their spiritual teacher in their life. And of course, mothers uh, provide some of those roles as well. And mothers are often forced to step into those roles alone. And we've talked about mothers on Mother's Day and many other occasions. And we think about women in the Bible like Timothy's mother and grandmother, that they stepped into those roles to provide and be a leader and a spiritual uh, teacher for their children. But this is not God's preferred design or intention for mothers to do that alone. And the specific admonition that we have in our New Testament is specifically to fathers to provide in this way. Uh, marking your spot in Micah, go to Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll look at these first four verses for a couple of minutes. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Back there in verse 21, we're instructed to submit to one another in the fear of God. And he goes through various relationships of submission, uh, wives and husbands, servants and masters. And then we have children and parents in verses 1 through 4. Children, here's your responsibility from God. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And the opposite side of the coin of that, just like there are responsibilities for husbands in regard to their wives and wives in regard to their husbands, the responsibility of parents. And notice that he said generally in verse 6, obey your parents. That's not just your father. You obey your father and your mother, which was somewhat unusual in the first century world to think about it in those terms. But in verse 4, he is more specific. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, 
but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now again, that doesn't exclude mothers. But it is specific about whose responsibility this is. It is the responsibility of fathers to be present and committed. Fathers, perhaps your children have you. Perhaps my children have me. But am I gone or distracted so much it is as if they are fatherless? Maybe it's work or hobbies or television or my phone or my friends or any number of things that that might just keep me from being there, being truly present, body, mind, and spirit. May I call on all of us as fathers to make that commitment to be there, to be present, and then to fulfill that commitment. So we see in Micah 6 and verse 8, there is this present commitment that is required of us. But the second thing that we see is what I will call active justice. We are supposed to do justly, not just think justly or be justly. We're supposed to do justly. And I think we see that same thing there in our same passage in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. It says that we do not provoke our children to wrath, but what we're supposed to do is bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Uh, ESV says the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, We see those two concepts being used in this passage. It begins by saying, do not provoke your children to wrath. And wrath is generally different from just what we might call a feeling of anger. Sometimes Sometimes I make my daughters angry, and I've, I've not provoked them, but I need to make sure that I'm not provoking them to what we would call wrath. And I think Paul does a pretty good job of uh, explaining that uh, as well. Sorry, if you'll turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and verse 26. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. Be angry and do not sin, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So when we're thinking about provoking them to wrath here, don't think about, the idea isn't never make your child angry. The idea is that I'm not acting in such a way that it causes an outburst of wrath in them. That I provoke them and provoke them, and then they have an outburst of wrath, which they're not supposed to do, but it's because of what I have done. Uh, Maybe I can be this blunt. Don't make it where they lose their temper just because you're being a bad parent. I'm frustrated, and I take that frustration out on them, and they return that frustration. They're that mirror of who I am, and then they're the ones who get punished for my behavior. So don't provoke them to wrath, and we know that commandment. But did you know that Colossians actually gives us a slightly different commandment? This is the parallel passage. It says here, Father's... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Some kids get angry. That was the kind of kid I was. I just got mad about it, and I'd stew about it, and I knew I wasn't supposed to uh, say or do things, but I'd get mad. But there are other kids, and uh, maybe you have a kid like this. I've got one like this. They don't get angry when you provoke them. They get crushed. They lose their confidence. They get nervous. Why? Because they were provoked by their fathers. And the point that I want us to see, especially as we consider Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, is that there is no justice in either one of those scenarios. 
But that's contrasted with bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the nurture and admonition, I believe the old King James says. And a balance is intended here. There's discipline, but there's also teaching. There is nurture and there is also admonition. And of course, as with anything out of balance, provocation, us provoking them, can be the product of too much discipline or it can be the product of too little discipline. Consider, if you would, Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 5 through 11. Turn over there, if you would. This is making the comparison between God's discipline and our discipline as earthly fathers. And while the Hebrew writer's intent is to take earthly fathers and make an application about God, I'm going to flip that this morning. We're going to look at God and then make an application to earthly fathers. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5, beginning... And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening, maybe some translations actually say the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Clearly that's a possibility mentioned here and in Colossians. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten or discipline? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection of the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful in the present, but painful. Yet afterwards, nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now we all know that this is a general principle When he says we have all been chastened, we know that there are some who don't have fathers and some who don't have fathers who discipline them. But the idea behind this is fathers who love their children discipline their children. And we see that most clearly in God himself. And we as fathers, we make mistakes. We do what seems best to us, what we think is right. But God makes no mistakes in the discipline that he gives. Our goal in the discipline that we give is ultimately that it might bring about the fruit, the peaceable fruit of justice, of righteousness. And a father who only uses the rod can never be just. And neither can the one who allows and ignores bad, destructive, detrimental behavior in his children. Neither one is just, and and kids pick up on that. Everyone gets frustrated. I want my kids someday, when they look back on their raising, I want them to remember me in lots of ways. But one of the big words that I hope is in their head, I want them to remember me as being fair. And there have been times, you know, when each of them have said, that's not fair, I don't think that's fair. But I want them someday to look back on it and say, you know, maybe I didn't like that, maybe it's not what I wanted. But looking back, back, Dad was fair about that. He was just about that. 
Our text in Micah actually has that same image of this balance between uh, the discipline we're supposed to have and then also the instruction, the guidance that we're supposed to give as fathers. If you go back there to Micah chapter 6, let's keep reading in verse 9 of that chapter. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, this is what God requires of you. And then it describes God beginning in verse 9 and notice what it says. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? God. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those who with wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore... I will also make you sick by striking you with the rod, verse 9, by making you desolate because of your sins. God is a loving shepherd. God is a loving father, exercises discipline on his children in Jerusalem who are living in sin, who are not doing what they should. And God brought that discipline because of his love for his people. But as wonderful as this justice is, it falls short of the biblical picture, the full biblical picture of a father. It is not just the rod that God uses, and neither should we. Notice if we drop down to chapter 7 and verses 14 and 15. After talking about the discipline that God is giving, in chapter 7, in the first 13 verses or so, we see sorrow that these people have over their sin. We see their confession because of their sin, that they try and make things right with God. And so what's God's response in verse 14? Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. So we see active justice, but we see the other side of the coin. As fathers, what is required of us is required of us to seek out mercy. Sought mercy is required of us, as our passage says, that we are supposed to love mercy. As fathers, we should want to be merciful. That's our preference. That's our default setting. I've told my girls this all through the years because it's true. It hurts me to discipline them. That is not something that I enjoy. And the passage that we read back there from Hebrews that all discipline is painful in the moment, I don't know if that's just for the one being disciplined. I think sometimes it's for the one doing the discipline, disciplining. I don't think God took any pleasure at all in taking out His rod to punish His people. And no father takes pleasure in having to discipline his children. We discipline because we love. But we show mercy because we want to. Because it's wonderful to get to show mercy. It's, I mean, it's kind of a, not a strong word, but it's fun. Isn't that fun? Isn't that where the parenting fun begins? When we get to show our children something wonderful and wondrous, we get to show them wonders because they know how to act according to discipline and instruction. 
We love showing mercy and loving kindness and loyal love. All of those attributes included in this phrase. We desire to bless and be a blessing to our children. And when our children wander, even if we must discipline them, we are like the father of the prodigal son, looking with great hope for the opportunity to forgive them and to bless them again. That's where God was. He wanted to use His staff with His people to just instruct them gently in the right way and to show them wonders. And so too for us, when our kid does the right thing, we get to praise them for it. When they're contrite about doing the wrong thing, we get to forgive them for it. And may we be remembered as fathers for showing this kind of mercy to our children. Because that is what the Lord requires of us. But it doesn't stop there. The number four thing should be expressed humility. That's what the Lord requires. He requires us to walk humbly. humbly. Um, do you remember, just by show of hands, dads, do you remember the first time you had to apologize to your kid? Anybody remember that? You had to apologize to your kid? I don't remember the first time I had to do that. But I do remember the last time, the most recent time, I had to apologize to my children. Let's see, when was that? That was uh, yesterday. Um, drive home. Turns out, uh, turns out getting less than five hours of sleep a night and then driving 11 hours home in a car together isn't the best environment for you to be the kind of father that you're supposed to be, the kind of husband that you're supposed to be. So I had to apologize to the kids yesterday uh, for losing my temper. Uh, and I'm glad that we had 11 hours in the drive because, you know, I had the issue I had to apologize for in Jackson, Tennessee, and I finally worked up the courage to apologize in Texarkana. Uh, but I want my kids to know that I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. That I'm humble enough to admit my faults, my wrongs. There's something that my dad, you know, my dad was here for a meeting, and so you got to hear about what a perfect child I was growing up. That was great. Um, but something that he said over the course of that meeting and something that I've heard him say all growing up, uh, well, really since I grew up, and he's preached on parenting at different times and places, there's something he always says. He says, there's one thing I know about parenting. Sounds like I'm making fun. I am a little bit. It's hard. That's what he would always say. One thing I know about parenting it's hard. And I, that always kind of bothered me a little bit. I'm like, I was perfect. It wasn't hard. What are you talking about? No, it bothered me because my parents were not perfect by any means, but they were godly, and they were always doing their best. They were trying to do what's right, and so it was always like a little bothersome to me to say, yeah, okay, it was hard, but you were good parents. You were godly parents. Don't be so hard on yourself. And now that I'm a parent myself, you know, there's one thing I know about parenting. It's it's hard, and we have to have the humility to admit that we don't have it all figured out all the time, which will lead us to seek the kind of wisdom and guidance that can direct us in what we ought to be doing as parents. It starts with having the humility to submit to God's plan for raising children, that God knows better than I do what is right and what is good in raising my children. We want to be good parents, and so we seek guidance and advice from all of these different sources. And I'm not telling you not to read parenting books and to go through all of that, but it must all begin and must all conform to what God has called us to be as parents. And so much of the advice that the world gives is contrary to what God tells us to do. 
And so much of the advice that the world gives is so much easier in the moment, but so much harder in the future. Especially when we reap what we have sown in going against God's desire for us as parents. I am reminded of the 127th Psalm. Will you turn there with me? Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. It is vain to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows. For so He gives His beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. This is not a new thought. This is the house that he was talking about building. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And so we imagine that time in our lives when we had a quiver full of children. And maybe you're at that time. Your children are still in the quiver And yet the time comes where we have to shoot those arrows. And so what should we be doing in the interim? What should we be doing is we should be seeking the wisdom of the Lord to build our house as He would have us to build it. By having the humility to seek help and the humility to accept or at least consider guidance from godly sources. Especially those who have raised godly children. Which brings us to such a difficult question. What if you've already shot your arrows? What if your kids are grown, Father, and you know that you've missed the target? Well, you can't change the past. But you can change the present and the future by humility. By continuing to grow now as a man and as a father by your spirituality now and who you are. And if there is something you need to repent of and make right with your children, do that. And what an impression it can make. No one wants to have a bad relationship with their father. I believe that. Nobody wants that kind of relationship. And so give our children the chance to know us for our repentance instead of our sins, our our humility. Now, I feel compelled to qualify that. There are a lot of kids out there who have come to believe that they experience some, the buzzword now is trauma, from their parents because their parents weren't perfect. Raise your hand if you had a perfect parent. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you pronounce you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We live in a world where there is no room for repentance, no room for growth. Whatever we were at our worst moment is what we are and will be for all time. I do not want to be remembered as a father for my worst moment. And let it not be so with us as children. 
Let it not be so among fathers and children. And we need to be careful how we judge the other and extend grace and forgiveness to each other. And I think we are all tempted with the benefit of hindsight to think about our fathers and think about how we might be superior or better than them. But have we learned any lessons from our fathers? Or are we repeating the same mistakes? Maybe some fathers were judgmental judging harshly without room for growth or repentance. But now their children are judging them by the same standard. And maybe some adult fathers are judging their own fathers in that same way. And I give you a word of warning from our Lord. How will your children judge you if you are judging your parents that way? For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Maybe we could all use a little grace and a little humility as we're striving to do the best we can, because it's hard. And time is short. Just got back from camp. One of the things that we talk about at camp is how the first couple of days are just so slow. You know, you got all this stuff and all these things that are happening all around you and there's so many things you got to prepare and it's like, it's only Monday night? Like, I feel like I hadn't slept in a month. And then you turn around once and all of a sudden it's Friday and, you know, all the kids are crying and everything's over and our team wins, you know. Uh, People warned me about that with parenting, but now I'm starting to experience it. It's like, I feel like I'm running out of time before I have to shoot my arrows. So what does that require of me? It requires the humility to look honestly at who I am as a father and try and do better today than I did yesterday. And the only way that happens is with our fifth and final thing. What does the Lord require of us as fathers? He requires godly leadership that we do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Yes, like the fathers suggest there in Micah chapter 6, we as fathers do have to give our children as a sacrifice to God, but not a literal one on a burnt altar. Instead, we raise them as a sacrifice. They are sanctified. They are set apart. They are offered up to God in His service. This kind of godly leadership is not always the rule, even in the Lord's church, but that is what the the Lord requires of us. We look around, and did you know, statistically, there are approximately 100 million more religious women than men in the world, and that's despite the fact that there are about 44 million more men in the world than women. Closer to home... Uh, among evangelical churches in America. There was a study in 2016. Those kinds of churches are made up of 55% women and 45% men. Of course, those are broad strokes based on self-identification. But it's not just the identification of a Christian that we're really considering this morning. It is the commitment to being a Christian. I shared with you on Mother's Day, pop, pop quiz, that pretty consistently the three most attended, visited Sundays across all Christian churches are, number one, Easter, number two, whenever Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, and number three, Mother's Day. 
But it is interesting to me that in all the lists I consulted, Father's Day does not make an appearance on any of them. Fathers, for whatever reason, generally do not draw their children to spiritual things to the same degree as mothers. Now that's, again, generally speaking. And as with most things, we as godly fathers are called to be the exception to our culture. That we draw our children to spiritual things because spiritual things are who we are about. And may we find our God-given fatherly purpose in raising faithful children and giving our children the opportunity to be faithful. Fathers, do you remember... Do you remember holding that child in your arms and thinking, I would do anything, anything for this child? The best thing that you can do for that child is to love the Lord and love their mother and teach them to love the Lord. You do that by stepping up to what God requires of you. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, in fellowship with Him, doing His will, raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what is required of you, fathers? I would summarize it this way. To be present and committed in the lives of your children by doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Will you strive to do that and be that this, this year and this day? If every father put on these qualities of godliness and righteousness, we would be the fathers God has called us to be because they, they are the qualities of our Father in heaven. This describes who our Father in heaven is. Now I know, as we said in the beginning, for some of you that image of God as your Father is a pleasant one because you had a good Father and you appreciate Him. And if you have had or you have a good father and appreciate the concepts of God's love and justice through that image, may I call on you to tell him that today, to thank him for being the kind of father that shows you who your father in heaven is supposed to be like. Believe me, there is nothing he would love to hear more than that you saw your father in heaven through the life of your father on earth. But for others of you, the image of a father is not a good one. Uh, it's funny. I, was, I get to preach on Father's Day this year because camp is a different week. Camp is always the week of Father's Day. But this year it was a week earlier, so I get to preach on Father's Day. I was like, great, I get to do a Father's Day sermon. I've been wanting to do one of those for years. And so, as I've done on Mother's Day with Mother's Day sermons, I start looking for characters in the Bible. And, you know, I've preached a dozen Mother's Day sermons, and it's always, not always, but usually a different character. And we've got all of these wonderful examples of wonderful mothers. And I start looking in my Bible, and it's pretty slim pickings. Even among men who are good men in many other ways, there are not a ton of really great examples of what godly fathers are. Even good men in the Bible were often poor fathers. But one of the biggest impacts that you can make in this world, one of the biggest impacts that you can make in the lives of 
all of those who are going to come after you is just by being a good father. You know, we want to make an impact. We want to make a name for ourselves as men. I think most of us have that desire, but this is one of the very best things that we can do. Uh, I know I'm just about out of time, but bear with me. One of the best books that I listened to, uh, either last year or the year before, uh, it was a book uh, written by George W. Bush about George H.W. Bush. It was a biography of a son to a father. And, and he read the audio version of that, and so in his Texas drawl, I got to listen at double speed. I you know, speed it, sped it way up on the drive to and from work every day. Um, and what struck me about that, it's not a political statement at all, but you know what George W. Bush loved so much about his dad? It was not that he was a hero in the Army or in the Air Force, though he was. It was not that he had accomplished so much in the business world and made so much money, though he did. It was not that he was the most powerful man on earth at some point in his life, though he was. He wrote that book because he was a good dad. And I'll be honest, I never really liked George H.W. Bush that much until I read that book. Because he made an impact on his son. Just as we make can make an impact on our sons and daughters. Maybe for you, that's not the image and history that you've had. And dad instead is an image of abandonment, betrayal, and abuse. May I offer this final word? Our God is everything a father ought to be and so much more. He is God of the universe and worthy of praise because of all that He has done and all that He is and all He's accomplished. But maybe even more importantly, He is a good Father. He is always present and active in our lives with total commitment. He does justly, perfectly. He is never unfair or unkind or mistaken in the type or amount of discipline that He administers. He loves mercy. That is the primary definition and description of God in the Old Testament. And it is seen even more clearly in the grace that is offered to us for our salvation in the New Testament. God, as our Father, loves mercy. God blesses and wants to bless. He desires a relationship with us that is full of love and mutual faithfulness. And maybe most amazingly, our God walks humbly, embodied in taking the form of a servant and dying on a cross for your sins. As Jesus told Philip in that regard, He who has seen Me has seen the Father in Jesus' humility, in Jesus' willingness to sacrifice Himself for the good of others. And our God sacrifices Himself for His children. This perfect One can be your Father. You were born into a physical family, good or bad, with a father, without a father, with a good father, with a bad father. But any of us who so choose can be adopted into the family of God and know what it is 
to have a father like this. So if we can help you with that, even this morning, won't you come into the arms of your loving father who is waiting with hope and expectation to bring you to him and to take you home someday. You're subject to the gospel call. Won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing. Come to Jesus.